Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 45 of Archaeology and Ale, a free monthly public archaeology talk brought to you by Archaeology in the City, the community outreach programme from the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. We are once again in the Red Deer Sheffield and our talk is entitled, Is There a Doctor in the House? We have brought together six postgraduate researchers and recently qualified doctors to talk to us about their work. We have, however, restricted them to just 10 minutes each. Our first speaker is Chris Duan, and his topic is Landscape Stability and the Formation of Social Memory in Prehistoric Britain. Take it away, Chris. Thank you, Steve. Um, round of applause for Steve Hollings. Isn't he fantastic? Thank you for inviting all of us, Steve. Yeah, whatever he said. Um, Steve really kind of pulled archaeology and ale up from the dead and has breathed new life into it, like God breathing life into Adam. So um, we do appreciate him very much. For the purposes of the tape, Steve, I'm going to try very hard not to curse, so I'm very sorry. Um, so I'm going to quickly take you through what I've been doing for the past four years, um, something I lovingly or hatingly called landscape stability and the formation of social memory in prehistoric Britain. <laughs> it's not a mouthful at all. Mouthful, excuse me. Um, so um, just fair warning, this is a pretty fuzzy theory-led project. So for those of you that are otherwise inclined, be aware there is archaeological theory incoming. So if you want to go, go use the toilet, no one's blaming you. Um, <laughs> Cool. So typically, in my opinion, yeah, the, the bar is right downstairs. No one will blame you. Uh, so in the past, prehistorians typically tend to look at this idea of memory uh, in prehistory and the reuse of features, the reuse of sites, um, the reuse of materials. Uh, examples might be Richard Bradley, who's on the far right there. Uh, talking about things like a timber circle being used assumedly for ritual purposes, demolished, and then after a period of time, a new one or a stone circle is erected in its place. That kind of idea, people returning to a place over and over and over again um, and reusing it either for similar purposes or somehow venerating those who were there before them. Um, and these are all well and good, and these have been pretty influential on me in my time as an archaeologist, but my issue with them, where my PhD comes into it, is I don't think a lot of them really consider the landscape and the role of the Earth itself or the place that they're in, in this idea of memories and creating memories. Um, and the Earth or the, the landscape is kind of treated as this 
canvas upon which people just do things. Um, so my angle is to look at what I refer to as landscape temporalities. And this is to, again, look at this idea of prehistory and memory and reusing places, um, but looking at places that I think of as being relatively stable, meaning slow changing landscapes. These are your uplands, your mountain ranges, uh, places with fairly solid geology that of course change like all things change, but over a pretty slow period of time, uh, or relatively dynamic landscapes wetlands, peat bogs, uh, intertidal zones, places that change fairly quickly, usually due to changing hydrology and changing vegetation. Well, this theory, I can hear Colin dying on the inside just a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so the question I always like to pose the couple times I've presented this is how does this idea of reusing a place and having memory of place and making a place change if you're in a an upland, a place that changes again very slowly, like Bodmin Moor here, which is on the top left. Uh, that's a stone um, hut circle. Sorry, I lost the word for a minute. Hut circle settlement um, in a granite upland down in Cornwall uh, versus a more dynamic landscape. This is the Somerset Levels, which is a place that's has in for as long as we've, I, since prehistory has been um, prone to seasonal flooding, things like that. Um, and so where the theory comes into this is there's basically two strands I look at. I look at what I refer to as the materialization of landscape, um, which is this idea of material, I'm sorry, of landscape being a material culture upon which people um, impress their memories, impress their dwelling, and then return to and read that material to look at how past peoples dwelled within a place. Um, and then this idea of social memory and its importance to prehistoric communities. So um, how important was it to dwell within a place in such a way that you venerated the past or that you left something behind that future generations could read. And again, what's the role in the landscape and all of that. So I looked at three places. Um, I looked at Bodmin Moor, which is down here. I'm really just having fun with the laser pointer now. Uh, Somerset Levels, which is here, and the Welsh side of the Severn Estuary up here. Uh, and I'm going to very quickly go through my methodology, mostly because I only have six minutes left, but also because I just don't want to talk about it and I'd rather talk about my results. Um, so it's been a pretty GIS-centric um, project. Uh, this has been a process of looking at, this is my study area in the Somerset levels, so um, that's that kind of second one I mentioned. Um, so it's been a process of mapping the landscape, looking at uh, what I think of as different zones in the landscape, um, looking at the rate at which they change. That could be due to the likelihood of erosion, of flooding, um, of just kind of rapid changes in vegetation. I tend to divide things up being either whether it's, you know, changes on a seasonal basis, changes on a yearly to decadal basis, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of thing. You can ask me afterwards or, or don't. Um, and then overlaying the archaeological data from them, which um, I just have to quickly mention that for all three of these places, the historic environmental records have been fantastic because they've pretty much given me all the archaeological data. I frankly wouldn't have been able to do it without them. Um, and then just looking at where things overlap, when activity was happening, what type of activity was happening, um, what, again, the stability of that landscape was, how quickly were things changing, or how quickly was the landscape changing, and what types of archaeology are we finding there? How were people inhabiting the landscape? And so just general discussions and themes, things that I found. Uh, there were three big themes I touched on in my discussion. Uh, the first is this idea of landmarks, uh, places that people seem to identify with, people, places that kind of serve as a bit of a focal point for activity to occur around. Uh, creating continuity, continuity on large scales and on smaller scales. That goes back to this idea that I said has been very regular in the way prehistorians look at um, 
memory in terms of um, returning to a place and venerating places that have had activity at them in the past. Uh, and then finally, this idea of erasure and disruption, uh, when places maybe are intentionally forgotten or intentionally abandoned or erased in such a way that they, the memory of them is almost the memory of them not being there rather than the memory of them being there. Um, so that first one I mentioned is landmarks. Uh, this is an example I like a lot. This is my Severn Estuary case study. This is a place called Goldcliff Island. It's really looks more like a peninsula nowadays, but it was basically during prehistory would have been a little island popping up through all the, the, the peat bog that was surrounding it. Um, and this is a place where you find, uh, you find activity across this intertidal zone, but a lot of it always focusing around this island, uh, around this kind of more stable bedrock chunk that's popping out of the peat while the rest of the landscape is changing. This is staying relatively the same uh, and people are coming back to that area because it's something they identify with. Um, that's strengthened by the fact that excavations done in the 90s and in the early 2000s have shown quite a lot of ritual deposits, uh, burials, things like that happening from the Mesolithic up until the mid to late Bronze Age on that island. Uh, other maybe more obvious examples are places like hilltops, again places that don't change very much. Uh, this is Rough Tour Summit on Bodmin Murr, one of the more kind of what I think of as a relatively stable landscape in my case studies. Um, and this is a place that had, you know, again, these a lot of veneration and ritual acts, ritual deposits from the late Mesolithic, uh, which then became stone circles and things like that being built in the Neolithic. And then interestingly, during the Bronze Age, uh, you kind of see this um, instead of people revisiting the site, almost people giving a respectable distance. So again, there's a memory of that place and people are acknowledging that place, but instead of through building things there, it's almost through staying well away from it for whatever reason. Uh, thank you, sir. The other, um, the other theme was continuity. Uh, so there's this idea of large scale continuity um, with an entire landscape being used over and over again for a similar purchase, whether that's food procurement um, or you know potentially trade, things like that. Um, this is just a picture I chose from the Brew Valley in the Somerset Levels, which is one of the more dynamic landscapes. So again, a place that's gonna change fairly frequently, but still you see this continuity of people revisiting. Um, and then what I think of as kind of like micro continuities, uh, this is the excavation of the sweet tracks also in the Brew Valley during the 1980s. Um, and this is a place where you see these wood trackways being built across the bog to sort of connect uh, the drier areas between settlements uh, and you see these successive trackways being built over and over again over the period of a couple generations. So this idea of people getting to know a place as a routeway across the bog, across the less stable landscape uh, and then revisiting that. So after a trackway becomes unusable, kind of revisiting it and um, building a new one there. Um, and then finally this idea of erasure. Um, this is a Iron Age, the remains of an Iron Age um, rectangular structure being excavated um, in the intertidal zone, the Severn Estuary. And so you see these forces, in this case, it's a natural force like tides kind of erasing um, evidence of previous inhabitation. And in other cases, uh, it's things like forest clearance, um, changing the landscape and changing the way people get to know the landscape. So in that case, kind of a disruption in the way memories form. Um, and that gets into this idea of affordance and phenomenology, which I know is a dirty word in this department. Um, and so again, getting into the archeological theory. Um, so I don't really, I'm sorry, very sorry. I don't really have a proper climax to all of this, uh, but that's what I've been doing. So I'll end it there. You're very welcome to disagree with me. Understand I am technically a doctor now. So thank you. I, thank you very much. I wasn't going for that. So the point is disagree at your own peril, bring your credentials. Um, and I'll see you.
and I'll see you in court, quite frankly. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. And now we turn to Katie Fawkes, whose topic is tackling the urban godless poor. How successful were Sheffield's commissioner churches, 1826 to 1856? Thank you very much. Um, as you can see, I'm, a, I'm, Kate, I'm the first year PhD student, so I'm still at the beginning of this tortuous journey. Um, those of you who know me will be thinking, Kate, there is no way that Kate can only talk for 10 minutes. I promise I'm going to try. Um, the other people will be thinking, what is an atheist like me talking about commissioner churches and what the hell is one anyway? Don't worry, all will be revealed. Um, so, without further ado, what is a commissioner church? I want you to picture... Sheffield in 1815, the Napoleonic Wars have ended. You've got lots of young, fit men returning after the war, no jobs. It's when like Colin the wild... <laughs> when Colin was a boy, yes, absolutely. And uh, it's basically, it's like the Wild West. You've got no police force. You've got... There isn't a single year between 1790 and 1815 where you don't have at least one riot. Sometimes you've got riots of 10,000 people. Who are, and when at the time the population is only 46,000, so you're talking about a seriously unrested kind of place. So, what you've got lots of writing. Um, there was huge worry that the establishment really thought two things. They thought that the revolution was going to happen in Britain. It's only less than 20 years since the French Revolution. All these riots made them think, yes, the revolution is definitely going to happen. And they thought it was going to happen in Sheffield. Sheffield had a reputation as being the most radical town in the land. Um, it was also a hive of Methodism, which was considered to be, by the established church, considered to be a very bad thing. So in order to tackle this urban godlessness, you've got all these people moving from the countryside into the town. All the church Anglican churches are in the countryside. They're not in the towns. And so lots of people are becoming godless, or they are also becoming Methodist, which is just as bad, if not worse, in the uh, Anglican church's view. So they thought, what are we going to do about this? So they decided they were going to be, build 612 new Anglican churches across England, and four of them are in Sheffield, and I'll talk about which ones they are in a minute. And they, had, they were providing free pew space for the urban godless, and that was actually the phrase that they used. They were terribly worried about that people were going to be secular. They also built these churches very close to the big Methodist chapels, which tell you a little bit about how worried they were about the competition that people from dissenting faiths, particularly in the north of England, they were also designed to provide more burial space. Um, there are some hideous kind of contemporary descriptions of walking past what is now the cathedral, what was then the parish church, and an arm flipping out of a grave, you know, and, uh, and the smell being so bad you couldn't get within 200 yards of it on a summer's day. So definite need for more burial space and starting to understand that it was a health hazard. But they were also these churches that were built, they had huge expectations on them. They were seen as providing this real bulwark against the for the establishment against disorder, against revolution, against people becoming Methodists. And so they were these churches were built and a, a huge amount was expected of them. So this is my, I'm just going to do, gloss over this very quickly. So basically my research question is to say how well did the commissioner churches tackle the things they were set up to address? But with particular reference to these three things, ministering to the industrial poor, 
educating, improving, and civilizing the poor into respectability. And they actually used those phrases. They talked about civilizing the poor, like they would talk about civilizing somebody in, you know, the third world at the time. Um, but also about how much they managed to reinforce the social and political status quo. So how much did they stop people becoming even more radical than their asses already were? So this was what they were up against. This is a, an external Methodist uh, preacher preaching to the poor. And this is the improvement agenda. I'm just thinking, look at this, this woman on the right, on the left-hand side here. She doesn't look like she wants to be improved much, does she? She looks proper pissed off at the idea that somebody stuffed her in a corset and then she's got to, and a long skirt, and then she's got to scrub things. I'd have been quite pissed off myself. So this was very much the agenda of what was being planned. So where are the churches? One of them, you'll recognise, St George's. It's now in the university campus. It's now, you know, university lecture theatre and accommodation. Um, built in 1826. Obviously still a church, still a big graveyard there. 15,000 people buried in there, can you believe? Where on earth did they put them all? So that's the first one. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the university are adamant that they haven't actually taken any away, but I think they kind of must have done. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So the second one, Christchurch in Attercliffe, that was bombed by the Nazis, and there's nothing there now except the graveyard. But the graveyard is still there. Then you've got St Philip's at Shalesmore. There is literally almost nothing that remains of it at all. It was again bombed by the Nazis and everything that was remaining was taken away by the, uh, the inner ring road. Apart from, bizarrely, this beautiful brass plaque, which anybody is welcome to look at, which was given to me by my hairdresser. <laughs> Yes, I have a hairdresser, um, but it, his salon is about 200 yards from the shop. And this guy came in and said, I was on the demolition team in the 50s when this was when the church was demolished. I took this home because I thought it was a shame for it to have been chucked away because I hit it with a pickaxe, which is what that bit there is. <laughs> and he kept it for all those years and he felt guilty about it. He said, I thought it should be somewhere near the church. So he brought it back to my hairdresser, who was now giving it to me. So I'm looking for a way to rehome it in the... Uh, in a museum somewhere. And then last but not least, the last one, St Mary's on Bramall Lane, which I'm sure you all know. The only one that's still in operation as a church. Now you can see they've got a certain sort of similar Gothic look to them. And obviously they were very much built to a bit of a blueprint on the cheap. So basically I'm planning to take what's called a historical archeological approach, which basically means that I use documentary sources and archeological sources. So I'm gonna start off looking at the documentary sources, look at the buildings, look at the burial grounds. Then I'm gonna move out and look at the wider landscape and look at the role they play, that the church has played in the, in the civic sphere, including educating and, and improving the poor. I'm going to use what's called a post-humanist analysis, which sounds very fancy, accessing suburban, subaltern narratives, basically it means telling the stories of poor people because these were churches which had poor and rich people in them because somebody had to pay the vicar so there were 50% of the seats were paid for and that paid the vicar's salary but the other half were free for the poor so you're talking about quite churches which were probably fairly contested spaces you know they were they were viewed as things where they were supposed to be very Tory spaces but actually I'm the research that I'm looking into suggests that they were actually quite a lot more complicated than that and they reflected the the radicalism of the town as well as the uh, the more conservative things so what am I going to use going to use standing building surveys and analysis of styles I'm going to do burial ground surveys when they're still there I'm going to analyze the the location and significance of the churches in the wider landscape and use historic mapping and things like that but I'm also using 
newspaper, court records, baptismal records, burial records, census records. And what I'm doing is I'm, for each of the churches, I'm getting a large sample of people who I'm chasing through the census to find out more about them so that I can actually look at the families, how much they were, you know, how poor were they? What did they die of? You know, all that sort of stuff. So um, that's very much the historical side of it. So what do I expect to find? Uh, well, I'm only in my first year, so actually this is quite a, a punt at this stage. <laughs> um, but I think the congregations were, thank you, were highly mixed. They were affluent and poor. And I think, but I'm already starting to find differences between the four churches. So for instance, St. Mary seems to have a lot more knobby people going to it than say, for instance, St. Philip's did. Um, I think they were contested spaces. The idea that they were all full of Tory people who, you know, were all about reinforcing the status quo. There were clearly people like that there, but I think there were also lots and lots of radical people. I've already found, for instance, some of the people who were arrested for chartist offences, uh, for rioting and making bombs and stuff like that, are buried in these churches. So the idea that, you know, they were, that all of the people who were involved in radicalism were all Methodists, not proving to be true at all. But when they only had 4,000 free pews, and when you think by 1861, the population was 186,000, that's not an awful lot, really. And they never had school places for more than 5% of the, the population's children. So they were never the biggest show in town. The Methodists always um, kind of beat them to it in sheer numbers, really. So I think they made some improvement of the respectable poor, but their impact on the very poor was probably minimal. So, you know, if you, you've got the aspiring the aspire, people who wanted to aspire to be respectable, I think they probably did have some impact on that. But for the very poor, I suspect that the impact was very small. They seem to have been quite peripheral to civic activity. Some of the people who attended there were very civically involved, but the, the churches themselves don't seem to have been. They seem to have very much taken their, their, their uh, mission to minister to the poor very seriously, and that was what they mainly did. And in a largely liberal and radical town, they were kind of, you know, the Tory element of that was, was never really going to fly, I don't think. But I think in the long term, they did. There, there was an acceptance of capitalism and the capitalist system that happened in the 19th century, and radicalism did slowly decline, particularly after Chartism disappeared in the late 1840s. And I think that the, the Commissioner Churches probably paid their part in that, but alongside the local government and the other dissenting churches. And that's me. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? 
Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Thank you, Kate. We're moving on now to Nina, whose title is Teeth Are Awesome, An Archaeologist's Perspective. You can already see that we're off to a good start because the title of my presentation is Title, Teeth Are Awesome. Um, (laughs) Basically, what I figured for the uh, spirit of the evening, I'll be talking about my PhD research that I did and the way that teeth actually basically saved the entire project because uh, one of the main sites that I worked at, I hadn't actually seen it before. I had to go and collect data on it. And I was told that it was about 200 individuals. And I thought, that's so much data. The material comes from Egypt. Egypt is nice and dry. Everything preserves. I am going to have a problem with too much data and no clue what to do with all of it. And when I got to the site or the, um, the museum where I was supposed to collect the data and I opened the box and I'm like, oh, I will have no data. And this is because the one thing that I had not thought about was the fact that the site that I was going to go and collect data from was in the Nile Delta. The Nile Delta is in the uh, Nile River Valley and floods every year. So this material had been inundated by water for thousands of years and every year it would flush away some of the uh, organic material from the bones and what had happened was the bones were becoming very soft they had squished they had skewed they had fractured the the surfaces had flaked off it was just it was a mess and i was there with i don't know four weeks and slightly maybe hyperventilating at this point, thinking like, okay, what am I going to do? And then what I realized is that the one thing that was still more or less intact was the teeth. And one of the things that my project that I was working at, it was part of a a larger project. Uh, They were interested in migration because this site in Egypt uh, had been established during the 12th dynasty about 1,700 years BC, more or less. And um, it was established because Egypt really wanted to get in on the Eastern Mediterranean trade network, which was booming at this time. Copper, Copper and bronze objects were just flying across and there were other technological big improvements and, and just everything was going back and forth. And this site, uh, Known at the time for the Egyptians uh, was called Rawati, later Hutwaret. Uh, to the Ptolemaeans, it was called Avaris. And then now we often, quite often, call it Tel Aldaba because of the modern village nearby. So this site became one of the biggest Middle Bronze Age 12th Dynasty site, sites there was. It grew to about 250 hectares. Uh, and for reference, most sites were about six at the time. So this was huge. It was a cosmopolitan place with a lot of people coming in and out. Uh, And a lot of evidence, actually, people coming from outside of Egypt and staying. And 
so the big question was, were these people actually just bringing in trade goods? And that's what we're seeing. Or were they also staying and then deciding to live there as well? Because some of the material culture was something that you would not see in, in trade relations. It was something like cooking ware, for instance. So people were bringing their own um, technological traditions with them and then just applying them to uh, local material. So teeth, why are teeth good for that? Uh, the same way that you can tell what people are biologically close to one another. So we'll say you can, you can tell um, families um, or, or even bigger regions. Um, you can tell where people are from uh, based on how they look just by different um, features that you can have. So that is something that is not just in your soft tissue, it is also in your heart tissue, aka your skeleton and your bones. And teeth, because they are very much um, governed by your DNA, because it is very important that your teeth are stable, no matter what happens during life. So they are very good for doing um, biological similarity studies, so we can use them as proxies for DNA, basically. And at this point, it's good to mention that all that flushing that had happened on the bones, it had also taken away all the collagen, and collagen is what you need for DNA analyses. So most, almost all of the biochemical analyses that we usually use in um, bioarchaeological studies were completely useless. So, but we still have the teeth and we have the morphological appearance of the teeth, the features of the teeth. So what I did was I recorded all of that information and I had a starting point. And then later, later in that project, two other researchers uh, joined me. One was doing a postdoc on, lo and behold, biochemical analyses, which means that her um, study was a little bit stumped, but she was able to use the enamel, which is harder uh, than the dentine in the bone, in the in the teeth, and she was able to get somewhere. And then another person also came in to look at the teeth and did oral health. And oral health is very good for looking at just the general well-being of people, and and also uh, seeing whether there's differences between different um, statuses or or whether there's um, differences as time goes by. And so, where was I? Yes. How much time do I have? Four minutes left. Four minutes. Oh, so long. <laughs> <laughs> I said you could do an interpretive dance. <laughs> it might come to that. I don't know which one is better at the end. Uh, yes. So, uh, short. Long story short, with the teeth, we were able to say that yes, a good number of people at this site in Eastern Nile Delta actually did come from outside of Egypt. Um, and, but even the ones that looked like they were non-local looked biologically the same as the ones who were local, which means that either people were coming, like the, the people who were already there, they had come even earlier than the ones that we had sampled, um, potentially either through forced migration or other types of migration. And what we could tell as well is that at the beginning of this time period when they started coming over, there was a lot of different um, 
dental uh, diseases, um, particularly, I think, carious uh, enamel hypoplasia. Enamel hypoplasia is something that happens in childhood when you experience a lot of uh, nutritional stress, for instance. And I think what we saw is that this decreased as time went by. So what we could see is uh, a group of people coming from outside, settling, and then stabilizing as time went, time went on. And, and that was just the, um, the, the analysis inside the, inside the site. When compared to the larger region, we could tell that they were coming from those same sites that, the, that Egypt was so interested in having trade relations with during the Eastern, in, the, in the Eastern Mediterranean during this time period. And we know that in this region, there was probably a lot of, in the, in the coastline itself, and when I say coastline in Levant, I mean regions from northern Syria to um, Lebanon, Palestine, Jordan, this and then Cyprus was also a big, uh, big deal in this uh, trade relationship. Um, so people were coming from all of these places, particularly in the Levantine region. And what we've what we have evidence is that in Mesopotamia at this time period, things were starting to get a little unstable, and it was potentially pushing people. Yes, one minute. <laughs> pushing people um, also into somewhere maybe things were a little bit more stable. And so you have that movement to Egypt where everything was lush <laughs> and beautiful and something. Rots your bones. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's it. That's Love them or hate them, they're, they save you. Thank you, Nina. We now turn to Kelsey. Kelsey's title is Digging for Italy, Vagnari Viscus and Fallery Novi. Excuse my pronunciation. So to start with the Vagnari Viscus Imperial Estate, what is an imperial state? So it's an enormous land holding owned by the emperor to raise revenues based on agricultural, transhumans and trade. So it's not a fancy um, villa as one might think. But we have some fancy uh, stuff I'll show you in a minute. So uh, Vannery is the only imperial estate excavated to date. So this is the only um, data we have on this type of, of working estate in southern Italy. So just to give you kind of context, where that red star is, is Batromagno, which is ancient Silvian, which uh, was settled first in 7th century BC by the Peocetti tribe and then later taken over by the Samnites. Rome expanded in the 4th century, defeated the Samnites at Silvium in 306 BC, and then they had conflicts with Pyrrhus and Hannibal later in the 1st and 2nd centuries BC. This, uh, these, this conflicts obviously caused disruption in southern Italy um, and confiscated territory by Rome. And Scipio Africanus is um, right up to date to where we are, and he took a bunch of land from the natives and gave them to uh, Roman soldiers because we don't want them to be unhappy and come back and kill us all. Um, and this is called the Agropublicus. Uh, in the red dot, we have Vannieri, and the blue star is Batromagno. 
So Banneri was settled first in the second century BC through the first century Sorry, the second century BC to the first century uh, BC. We don't know who established this second century settlement. Um, more excavation needs to be done, um, but it might have been rented out or leased to um, to locals by by Roman Roman authorities. So it was resettled in the first century AD, where we have evidence for the elite owner. Um, here's some uh, some objects that had come from that. And the second century AD is the focus on the settlement of production. And it is settled all the way up through to the fourth century AD. But um, the interesting stuff comes from the second, the first and second AD. How do we know this was owned by uh, a Roman emperor? Well, we have a stamped tile from the site that says Caesar Augustus and gratis, which is the slave of Caesar. So we know that uh, at some point Caesar himself or Augustus taking the name upon Caesar uh, acquired this estate around the first second, latter first century BC and he owned slaves that worked there. So there's our evidence for that. It's also located on the Via Appia, which is a major roadway in Italy. Um, it is also on uh, torturos, which are droveways. So for transhumans purposes. Yeah. Oh, that's just the uh, that's just the view of the site uh, when you're looking out. So you have the Vicus all the way out there, and then we have a necropolis uh, behind it. So we have those who lived and those who died right here. Um, here is a plan of the site of the building that we have so far. So you can see um, a GPR on the right hand side. We have uh, a cistern underneath the settlement and then it goes further, um, further east. So we have um, diverse cereal cultivation. All those blue dots are storage pits. Um, so we have free threshing wheat, glim and barley throughout different phases of the site, one through four. So there's four different phases of processing. Uh, various species are processed and stored throughout these phases. Um, and the crop diversity could mean insurance against climate variability, hample soil erosion, or just reflects the advanced knowledge of farming in this part of Southern Italy. We also have sheep grazing for production of wool. So we have uh, maps here of just the, the, the droveways and we have Varro talking about how flocks of sheep are driven all the way from Apulia, which is the region that Banyuri is in, into Seminium for summering and tax purposes. We found a winery. This is called the Celevinaria in Latin. Uh, it indirectly provides evidence uh, for established vineyards in the second century AD. So this is when the vineyard, um, winery was established. It's relatively small compared to other wineries uh, in Italy and, settle, and other um, working villas and estates. So we're assuming that all of this wine was produced locally and distributed locally. There was not a large export for this because there was also a very lavish um, villa up on the hill that was owned supposedly by Pompey, so um, they're probably supplying wine for them as well. So the winery goes out of use in the third century AD. And then we have, we did some chemical analysis on the uh, residue for the uh, dolia, which are the wine vats. This was done by the British Academy, funded by um, Giuseppe Montana at the University of Palermo. Um, so one might think that they would make these massive vessels close by the site. Turns out 
not. Um, why would they, uh, you know, spend extra money to do this? Because they could in the room, and why not? Um, so we found out that the the fabrics do come from one of these two, uh, one of these three areas here, and then they were made and then shipped down south. Um, so there was no um, rhyme or reason behind that. It was because they could. They had specialists. So why why change something? Why fix it if it's not broken, right? So then we have evidence for local pottery and tile supplies. We have evidence for glass making. Actually, the glass um, vessels and window glass, which is very rare uh, to find archaeologically, was more than likely processed in Egypt, and then the, the, the raw material was brought to the Mediterranean from that point on. Herbal, um, there in the middle, used for cladding and um, pavements. So we were work there was working going on. There was enslaved people here, but they weren't working in ugly conditions, I'll tell you that. Um, these were subject to geochemical and petrographic analysis. Um, decorative stone came from limestone in Italy. The plain white marble from Athens and the white and bluish gray from quarries in Southwest Asia Minor. This is a digital reconstruction of the Vicus, and we have a monograph edited by Maureen Carroll, the site director. It's great, it's wonderful, please buy it. I'm not biased. <laughs> Moving on. So now that Vanieri has come to sort of a close for now, I'm now involved with uh, the Fuleri Novi project with the British School at Rome in partnership with Harvard, Toronto, and Ghent. So according to historical sources, Fuleri Novi was founded on Rome's destruction of the nearby Philistican sitter of Fuleri Veteris in 241 BC. So we have Fuleri Veteris on the right, Fuleri Novi on the left. The urban site along the Via Amarina persisted at least until the first half of the 6th century AD, becoming a bishop bishoparic in AD 465, and in the 12th century, a monastic church of Santa Maria de Fileri was added and now represents the only standing structure on the site other than the ancient circuit walls. So um, there's been various GPR analysis, coring done by Ghent and Cambridge. Um, you can read about that uh, online, but research to date raises a number of questions about the city's relationship to settlement trends in the wider Tiber Valley, as well as about Fleury's own development. So the questions we're looking to answer um, during these excavations, which are first started last year, um, what is the chronology of the city's infrastructure? What can be known about Fleury's last urban phases? And these excavations are hoping to tell us that. So GPR done by Ghent and um, Cambridge show obviously this massive city, the, the Surrounding walls still stand today. Those are the walls, they're massive. Um, here's some more of the excavation. So McKellum was done by Harvard, Domus was done by Toronto, and the Southgate was done by the British School at Rome, which is the team I'm on. McKellum is a Roman um, meat market, basically. Then we have the Domus. Then we, the Domus had some, some, some uh, pillars. So, so we found specifically at the Southgate, a uh, late, late antique settlement. We don't have anything going down to the Republican period, which is kind of what we were hoping for. We found a secondary road. We found massive stones from the nearby amphitheater lining that road for um, raising the elevation of the room next to it. God knows why we don't. Um, at the top left, we have flooring, pottery, burning, you name it. It's there. We also found inscribed stones. We have some nice uh, African red slipwear on the left, coins, grind mill stones, and medallions, um, and, and puppy paw prints. Woo, 10 minutes. <laughs> Thank you, Kelsey. We turn now to Yvette, whose title is A Reassessment of Copper Smelting 
in the late Neolithic and early Bronze Age Aegean. So I don't remember what year my PhD I'm in now. Um, <laughs> I started in 2014 as a part-time um, candidate. I'm now a staff candidate. Um, within that, I've had about two and a half years of leave of absence to teach the department's experimental archaeology and metals modules then because the world fell apart. And then more recently because I've had spinal surgery. So I'm actually back doing the PhD again. And I intend to submit it before the department as we know it closes <laughs> that's the aim um so yeah it's nice to kind of to talk to you about it because i'm as i said i've just started again so it's nice to kind of remind myself what i've been spending nearly 10 years doing um and hopefully talk about it in 10 minutes so i'm looking at um copper reduction in the late neolithic and early bronze age aegean and a particular way that it's made so not just all copper production, but this um, particular type of evidence that represents a particular practice. Um, so the pictures on the left are the archaeological evidence. Um, so there's the evidence from the top left, which is um, from Kifnos, um, which is a thicker kind of variant. So the ceramics about two um, inches thick. It's got perforations, and then you get this kind of finer ceramic, which is you know two centimeters thick at the most with perforations. On the right-hand side, you've got the kind of um, reconstruction from Betancourt of how these furnaces look. So the conical um, shaft furnace, about 45 centimetres high, and the main feature is these perforations. So you, um, you get these at um, a select sites in the Aegean. Um, when I started this, there was about six sites, there's now 12, um, <laughs> but in a specific area. Um, so the reconstructions of... of these from other people kind of put a model of making copper onto them. So basically they're ticking a box, they're going, there's ceramics, there's vitrification, there's, there's copper, or they're making the smelting copper, they must have done it like this. Well, what I've done is done experimental archaeology to test a different method of smelting copper in these furnaces. So I think there's a different practice going on in this specific area in the Aegean, different to how they're doing it elsewhere. And because this is around 6,000, 4,000 BC, at that time when it's a kind of the initial um, instigation and transmission of metallurgy, what does that mean about um, how that how metallurgy is, is passed on um, if they're doing it very differently in a in one little area? So um, the method that everybody everybody else the the, the um, widely accepted method is that um, these are powered by bellows. So there's um, a ceramic kind of pot that has material attached to it, where you um, it emits air um, into the furnace via Toyer. So there's one site that has evidence of bellows, which is Chrysocamino, which is actually much more recent. So it's actually more around 3000 um, BC. And actually the picture on the left is all the evidence from that site of bellows. And I think that looks a lot like a cooking pot. <laughs> the, the, the drawing in the middle is, is the reconstruction and the right hand side is an, an image from um, a tomb in Egypt where people are using bellows. So you can kind of see they're kind of stood on them. Um, nothing that would work anywhere. So I think when people were initially finding these sites in the 90s, um, it was kind of like a tick box exercise. There's, you know, as I said, the ceramics, there's, there's um, metallurgical debris. It's a smelting furnace. They must have used bellows. And so this is the only site out of 12 that has evidence for bellows. So remember that. <laughs> I'll come back to it. Um, so I've reconstructed these furnaces um, and... 
I don't believe they're bellow driven. I believe they're natural wind furnaces. So because of the perforations, if you look at how perforations are used in pyrotechnology elsewhere, it creates through the um, fluid dynamics, it creates different pressure regions and just by the wind kind of blowing over them and around them, it sucks air into them. And there's a number of different windblown furnaces, some um, archaeological, so Wadi Fanan and places like that, some ethnographical like the Hurricane, um, and they work basically by wind blowing across them and the different pressure regions. So I did experimental campaigns, which you can see. I looked at the evidence to, and it looks similar, but I also looked at it microscopically as well. So from looking at the slag that comes out of these, so the waste products, so basically everything in, in copper or that's not copper produces like a glassy, a glassy product. By looking at that under the microscope, you can see whether it was a reducing or oxidizing environment. And the slag from the archaeological sites has this banding where it's going from being reducing, oxidising, reducing, oxidising. And the other people who reconstruct this say that's due to the wind from the bellows. Um, however, oh no, they didn't actually, I'm lying. They said it's through tapping the furnaces. So by poking a hole in the side of the furnace, the slag runs out, it hits the air, it solidifies. That's how you get the banding. But I see that as one occurrence so you'd, you'd get it once um, so when they've reconstructed it and tested it with bellows you don't get that when I've tested it with wind power you get that banding because it, you're constantly getting air cooling the slag more stuff drips on you get it cooling again you get that banding um, so I guess because I'm saying they're making metallurgy um, differently in this area at the same time it's supposedly been um, transmitted by travelling smiths why are they doing it very differently in this region and what does that mean? So I'm also putting a bit of theory, boo, theory, <laughs> into this and saying, what does, what does this mean? Um, so I don't know if I'm a as yet as to say I'm going to propose my own theory for the transmission of metallurgy as Renfrew and Child. I did sit down with Renfrew over Uzo and talk about this and he said it was very interesting. Um, but I'm, I'm maybe thinking there's independent reinvention so people are seeing this this process and they're perhaps um using existing skills so in some of the some of the areas where we find these perforated metallurgical ceramics we find other perforated pyrotechnical ceramics like bee smokers incense burners and um, things you put on halves to make the half get hotter so they're already using perforated ceramics and understand how air helps with that um, so just to give you an idea, the um, kind of red circle is where Child saw the homeland for metallurgy and it spread west across to Europe. Um, Renfrew sees two homelands or multiple homelands for metallurgy, so the green circles. And the little blue circle near Sam's head is where um, these, these perforated um, furnaces are coming from. And because my maps are terrible, this is a map that Colin made for me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you can see that it's not even across the whole of, of Greece and the Aegean. It's actually a very isolated area. So it's that kind of um, Athenian peninsula, a couple of sites in the Cyclades, and then right down at the bottom, there's um, a site on Crete, which is the one that's more recent. <laughs> Sam's head again. Um, so that was just to remind you that I... Two and a half minutes, that's fine. So yeah, I reconstructed these furnaces, tested my methods. So I actually went to some of these sites, recorded wind speeds, replicated the wind speeds here with um, the structures, um, managed to smelt copper, 
and analyzed the slags. So you can kind of see that banding, so that kind of silver stripe going through the middle, um, and the difference is either side. So there's this kind of clear change. It's not just a one instance of like tapping at the slag, hitting the air and kind of forming. There's this lay, it's layering up over time. I've also done XRF analysis um, to look at um, residues because I think there's actually more ceramic furnaces than have been identified, but they've been misidentified as cooking pots because if they're not highly fired and vitrified, they can't possibly be metallurgy. But actually some of the, the you know, the higher percentage copper ores can, can be smelted at a much lower temperature. Um, and then I'm not going to do an interpretive dance, but I did bring dancing into it. Um, so, you know, if it's wind powered, there's time to dance. If it's bellow driven, you're doing a lot more work. Um, so it just, I did that one <laughs> back when I was good at doing things on computers. Um, so yeah, so kind of like, why would you put a lot of, um, effort into doing something where you don't have to, I think we're not, we're inherently kind of resourceful, um, and you know there's no evidence for bellows apart from at one site um, so I think the evidence that kind of maybe does suggest that the bellows and some of the other things might be a refining stage so it might be when they're um, crushing the kind of conglomerates down to get the pearls or when they're casting um, so yeah my PhD is kind of redefining this evidence proposing a new method and proposing this kind of re independent reinvention um, Thank you, Yvette. Finally, we have for you Sam, whose title is Point and Shoot, a radiographic analysis of mastodoitis in archaeological populations from England's northeast. Okay, so if you have taken my archaeological sciences course, I'm really sorry, you probably know a lot of this already. If looking at this group over here, you're in my Applied Bioarchaeological Science course, I'm really sorry, you're going to get this in a few weeks. But by the time we come to that, you'll have memorized everything and you'll be experts, right? Sure. Sure. All right. Well, we're going to test your uh, memory of the human osteology and human anatomy in a few minutes, so we'll see how we go. All right. Pop quiz. <laughs> Pop quiz. It's okay. It's not on teeth. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about my PhD research, and in many respects, this is going to be a memory test for myself, too. How much can she remember? All right. Yes, that is the second slide. Good. Okay, so before we go any further, I have to talk to you a little bit about infection, specifically respiratory infection. So after COVID, you're all probably absolutely sick and tired of me talking about respiratory infection. And in that regards, I should probably give you a content warning. Um, if you do not want to sit and listen to a talk on respiratory infection after COVID, I will not be offended if you do want to leave. That's totally fine. Similarly, um, we will be talking about human skeletal remains. Uh, you will rarely see photos of those in my presentations, so do not worry if that's not something you want to see today, that's totally fine. So to begin, when we're talking about the respiratory system, we have to consider more systems than the areas we usually think of. Usually we just think of the lungs and we're kind of done. Um, but it's actually a very, very connected system. So we're going to start with your nasal cavity up at the top there. So that's breathing in through your nose or breathing in through your mouth. That's going now back to your nasopharynx, which then goes down your pharynx and into your lungs. Now, from your nose, you also have 
have a series of sinuses, your largest being your maxillary sinuses. Um, so those are going to be right in the front of your face, just below the orbits for your eyes. And then there's also this other area that a lot of people don't usually talk about. Um, of your temporal bone air cells. And this is where I'm looking at my human osteologist over in the corner here, fingers up, pointing to your mastoid processes for everybody, please. Thank you, excellent. So if you put your finger directly behind your ear and you will touch a bony bump, this is a muscle attachment site, but it's also your mastoid process, which is filled with air cells, which are directly connected to your nasopharynx through a little tiny soft tissue tube called your eustachian tube. Now, there's a series of air cells within here that are very, very interesting to me, at least, and hopefully you by the end of my presentation. But I will not be offended if you're not interested. You can always be interested in teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about mastoiditis. What are the mastoid processes? And when they get infected, you add the itis on the end and you get mastoiditis. So the etiology or where these come from, um, well, bacterial or viral infections is pretty much anything. Anything that's going to irritate these systems is going to cause mastoiditis. Um, they're primarily infected by, um, well, primary infections or secondary infections. It's really, it's anything. Absolutely anything that can annoy these systems, we consider mastoiditis. Now, there are a few different complications that you can get along the way if you have mastoiditis. So it's not just the mastoiditis you have to worry about. Um, you can get changes to the air cell walls. You can get abscesses through your mastoid process, and then it comes down your sternocleidomastoid muscle, which is delightful, and then pools um, in your chest cavity. Um, you can also get fusion of your auditory ossicles, which is going to mean you're going to eventually go deaf, or you can end up with meningitis. Um, the impact of all of this, well, obviously discomfort and pain, that's kind of going without saying. Um, if you're a child and you get mastoiditis, you're also starting to talk about things like delayed speech acquisition and language acquisition. Um, you can end up with blindness, deafness, or death, uh, because all these systems are so related to one another. And there's a few key risk factors for something like mastoiditis. Now, previous mastoiditis is a risk factor, and we'll talk about why in a few minutes. Testosterone is a risk factor, as it is with any other infection, testosterone is an immunosuppressant. So to a certain extent, if you have higher testosterone, you're probably going to be more susceptible to an infection than someone who has lower testosterone. If you've been insufficiently breastfed, now the WHO and UNICEF actually set the bar very, very high. They go all the way up to two years for breastfeeding to get the full um, amount of good effects that you can get from breastfeeding. So if you were breastfed for that long, congratulations. You are very, very healthy, I would imagine. Um, also, young age or exposure to non-adults is a huge risk factor. Anyone who is a parent in the room will know children because they have shallower breaths and immature um, respiratory systems are going to be catching respiratory um, infections more often and then they're also transmitting them more. Similarly, overcrowding, um, air pollution, and cold weather can also be risk factors. So hey, if you live in the UK and it's winter time, you probably check a lot of those boxes. <laughs> All right, so there's a few current methods for studying mastoiditis. Now, in the clinical realm, we're mainly talking about x-ray or CT. That's what's going to happen to you if you go in your doctor expects or suspects that you have mastoiditis. 
Now, if we're starting to talk about um, the archaeological sphere, we can do more fun and exciting things like cut your mastoid process open and have an actual look at it. So that's where we start to get into things like sectioning, uh, microscopy, and endoscopy. But we can also start talking about X-ray and CT. But we have a lot of problems with these sorts of things. Obviously, um, well, the archaeological methods are very destructive. Um, the other methods are very costly. They're also inaccessible, and all of these methods altogether are incomparable to one another. You can't easily put one picture next to another, whoops, and say, hey, look at that. This is what's going on. So that's where I came along. I said, all right, we've got a problem. We've got a really interesting thing to study, but no one's really studying it. So what can we do? So in my master's research, I started looking at this question, uh, studying some hunter-fisher gatherers in Siberia. And I liked my method, but I wasn't completely happy with my method. I felt like there was more I wanted to do. Um, so I came here because they had the handheld x-ray system that I wanted to work with. But hey, along came COVID. So my sample size of 2,000 individuals really got squashed down to 386. But it was still enough for me to explore my method better. So I'm starting to look at understanding um, a, or having a grounded and more clinical practice that's non-destructive and accessible that allowed me to compare do, two different populations from different areas. We're going to speed through that part, though, because we don't have too much time to talk about the populations. I want to talk to you more about the methods. So I looked at the Blackgate population, uh, which is a late Anglo-Saxon population from Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and St. Hilda's Church population from South Shields, which is an industrial population. So as you can imagine, living in two very different environments, doing very, very different things. But enough about them, let's talk more about the technology. So here is our handheld x-ray system, which we need an upgrade for if you have a spare 10,000 pounds. <laughs> Donations will be left in the hat at the end of the day. Um, this is the system. It was designed for doing dental x-rays in your dentist's office. The idea being if it's handheld, it's more versatile and it's a little less intimidating than having the version that's mounted to the ceiling and having that come down at you. It also means you can take this into the field and you can can use it forensically, for example. Um, when I was in my master's, or doing my master's, we looked at this and we said, you know what, we can use this for a variety of different things. Why don't we try shooting some mastoid processes? So I had the fun job then of taking this into Russia and explaining to them that it was not a gun. Um, it is, in fact, an x-ray system. Uh, luckily for me here, Colin had the fun job of coming in every day during the pandemic and letting me in so I could take x-rays. So here we have a few examples of what your mastoid process looks at various different stages. So on the left, in the top, we have a healthy individual. So this is what we call hypocellular mastoid processes. You'll notice all of the air cells are quite large. They're nice and open. Every time you breathe in, you're going to get some air going up through your station tube, and it's going to aerate, hopefully, your middle ear, which is then also aerating your mastoid air cells, keeping everything nice and open, happy and healthy, pressurized, the same as the outside air. Now, if you end up with an infection before puberty, because your air cells grow during puberty, then these air cells don't develop. You end up with stunted air cells, and they look like the air cells in the bottom left. This is childhood mastoiditis. So this individual here ends up with this tiny, tiny air cell structure. And that's something that you can see even into adulthood. If you have childhood mastoiditis, your air cells never develop. And that's exciting for an archaeologist because most things that happen in your childhood remodel in your skeleton throughout your life. But this is actually a permanent indicator 
of a disease that you can see all throughout the life course. Now, very quickly, if you pop up to the top right, this is what it looks like if you have adult mastoiditis. So we go from our healthy, nice, big air cells to air cells that are partially destroyed and then sometimes filled in with um, subperiosteal bone growth. And down at the bottom, we have an individual who had childhood mastoiditis and then ends up with an infection later in life. So we can take this life course approach. Ooh, there's my timer. Perfect. So whizzing through the very last things, the significance of this <laughs> is it's non-destructive, it's accessible, and it's diagnostic. We can study someone's entire life history, and it seems to be more accurate than the studies like maxillary sinusitis, because maxillary sinusitis has to be chronic in order to affect the skeleton. This can just be acute and lower respiratory infection, in which case um, things like tuberculosis only affect the skeleton in 8%. So this this is a really interesting thing to study because it tells us a lot. We can explore themes like occupation, housing, nutrition, social status, and class, which I did during my thesis, but we're not talking about the people, we're talking about the method. So future research, because you know, COVID happened, there were a few things I couldn't do. Hopefully I'm gonna start doing a replication study. We can show that it's not just me who can use this, other people can use it too. We can continue the CT study I started, um, but only got the chance to scan two individuals, but behold, things on the screen and that's as far as it got um, and then hopefully more collaboration so plenty to do hopefully the department sticks around long enough for good things like this to happen excellent Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Archaeology and Ale for more information about our podcast and guest speakers please visit our page on the Archaeology Podcast Network you can get in touch with us at Archaeology in the City on Facebook, WordPress, Instagram or Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Next month, our talk is by Chris Atkinson, as entitled Exploring Wadsley and Loxley Common, Community Investigation as Part of the Sheffield Lakeland Landscapes. We hope you join us. Thank you. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.